After Café Derby, a street led up, up an incline. Now I know it leads to Brigantoiro. True or not, I translate as the asking place. I didn't know it was the old town, didn't know anything. In the shops, displays of tetilla cheese and old-fashioned girdles, but nothing open, the whole city a brownish stone that glittered. Out of a narrow alleyway, the Quintana opened and the cathedral reared up. There was no one, as if the world had retreated and it was given to me. Rain dripped from the arches, from everything, but no rain was falling. I stood there a long time in the glistening. Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 40, we have reached middle age. I'm Dave The canon of Camino literature skews predominantly towards memoir, buttressed largely by historical and cultural supplements. When people ask for book suggestions in Camino forums, you'll see a lot of familiar names, Cod and Kuntz, Rupp and Jacino, Kirkling and Watkins, and hey, Rebecca Scott's Furnace Full of God is available now too, if you haven't tracked it down yet. Memoirs all. But what about fiction? Well, first we have to stipulate that we're going to accept memoir as nonfiction, and given the faulty nature of memory and the degree to which the authorship of a memoir is removed from the events described, that's quite a leap. But the premise of this introduction falls apart if we don't accept this, so let's do it. I don't want to have to start over. The most common fiction associated with the Camino has more to do with origin stories and general setting. Way back in episode 13, I spoke with Dr. John K. Moore Jr. about the Song of Roland and the Poem of El Cid, two epic poems that feature prominently on the way. Rebecca Scott's The Moorish Whore is set largely in Sahagún. And I remember excitedly reading Hemingway's descriptions of Pamplona and Borghete in The Sun Also Rises, even if I couldn't summon much enthusiasm for the rest of his work. Slowly, though, we are starting to see the pilgrimage to Santiago explored through other genres. And this episode focuses on two of those. Up first is Ashley Coles, the author of Beneath Wandering Stars, a young adult novel set on the Camino. We talk about what fiction offers a reader that perhaps memoir lacks as well as the hazards an author faces when working with such beloved subject matter. After Ashley, I'm joined by David McLaughlin, a poet from Dublin, Ireland, by way of New York City, whose poetry collection, Santiago Sketches, comes from his year spent in Santiago de Compostela in 1993. You'll hear some of David's poems in that interview and throughout this episode. It's Beneath Wandering Stars, Santiago Sketches, and the Camino Podcast. Enjoy. Across decipherable in sandstone, the full moon in a window, in light of which sometimes I see writing on the stone, graffiti of an Irish pilgrim. They wrote El Dinguel de Santiago in the Book of Arrivals. Then he missed the boat back. 
Ashley Coles of Michigan, USA, is the author of Beneath Wandering Stars, the 2017 winner of the Colorado Book Award, and Below Northern Lights. Both are young adult novels featuring a similar cast, but the former is set on the Camino de Santiago, following two young pilgrims making their way westward. She joins me now to talk about this unusual work of Camino fiction. Thanks for talking with me, Ashley. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Let's start with a description of your work for those who haven't read it. What's the general premise of Beneath Wandering Stars? Well, like you said, it's a young adult novel, so aimed at readers in their teens and maybe early 20s. So it's a coming-of-age story, so I hope it appeals to readers of any age. Mm -hmm. But it's about a 17-year-old girl who walks the Camino Frances, and she's walking it on behalf of her brother, who is a young soldier who is wounded in action in Afghanistan. That's the gist of it. Gotcha. Yeah, the nice thing about young adult <laughs> fiction for older people is it doesn't require as much thought, right? It can just be like a pleasant page turner. So I do think it works for adults pretty well. And more and more adults seem to be drawn to young adult fiction. Well, they say that about 50% of the readership is made up of adults. So <laughs> um, yeah, there must be something about that time of life that people are either nostalgic about or they're still working through. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of adult readers. Yeah, or maybe trying to understand their kids better. That too. There's two central points of focus in the book. There's the Camino setting, and then there's also military families. What drew those together for you? You know, when I started writing fiction, I didn't really ever think I would write young adult novel. I love historical fiction, and that's what I have always wanted to write. But I got the idea for a young adult novel because of my own upbringing. I grew up in a military family. I was a high school teacher, so seeing the different books that are being published for young people, it just kind of struck me that I didn't see that life experience represented. And I just know that millions of people have grown up with a parent in the military, and it was such a formative experience in my life that I decided if I'm going to write a YA story, I think it would probably be about a military brat. That's the story I would want to tell. So my own background definitely influenced that, and I actually lived my high school years on a U.S. base in Germany. So I definitely wanted it to have that kind of third culture kid international experience of what it's like to live in this weird American bubble, but overseas. And it just actually worked out really well when I was thinking of what kind of I wanted to have an adventure, a traveling experience of some kind. And the Camino just seemed like a natural fit. I had walked it and studied it in college. So it seemed like the perfect way to connect those two elements. Were you thinking as you were walking the Camino about it from a novelist perspective? And were you starting to see some of the pieces of what would become Beneath Wandering Stars fall into place? A little bit. It's interesting. So I was a history major in college and studied abroad in Spain. So my introduction to the Camino was taking a history course where our teacher actually, it was a small class. I think there were eight of us in the class. And we would learn about the Camino in class in Madrid. And then on the weekends, he would take us up in a van into different sections of the Camino. <laughs> so we'd visit specific monuments, specific places, and he'd tell us the folklore or different historical events surrounding that particular section. Mm -hmm. So that really is where I first got interested in the Camino. And then I came back several years later and walked part of it. And at that point, I had already written my very first novel was a historical novel set on the Camino that will never see the light of day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most first attempts at a novel are, are pretty bad. <laughs> so I, when I was walking the Camino, I was thinking about that story that I had already written. And I was kind of revising the main character in my head as I was walking and seeing the, the things that she would have saw 
and the voice just started to become more and more contemporary and the concerns more modern. So it just kind of made me think maybe this novel doesn't want to be a historical novel. Maybe it wants to be set in the present day. The novel wrote you in a sense. Yes. <laughs> yes. Which is a common occurrence. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that process then of developing the Camino de Santiago as a setting for a novel. What were you thinking about as you went through that? What did you want the reader to see in it? And what did you prioritize in terms of elements that you would draw upon? One of the really interesting things about the Camino is that it isn't just a physical hike. It's not like walking the Appalachian Trail or some other long backpacking trek in the wilderness. There's a lot of civilization. There's culture, there's history, there's cuisine. And I think at least an American audience may not be aware of that as much as people are in Europe. So when I was thinking of writing a fiction aimed primarily at American teenagers, that was definitely something I wanted to highlight. Mm -hmm. There is a physical element to it, but there's a lot more going on. I also wanted to show the diversity among the different type of people you might meet and think of different ways to, especially trying to maybe draw a younger pilgrim, younger generation of pilgrims to the Camino. How could I reveal that it's of a more introspective experience than, let's say, partying around Europe as a backpacker in college? So it's, <laughs> it's a very different thing. <laughs> and maybe making the idea of an introspective experience sound more appealing to a teenager, which some are drawn to it. And for others, the appeal might not be quite so apparent. Yeah. And I think that's something we're lacking in many ways as a society is what are some of these rites of passage, these marks of moving into adulthood. And I've always thought that the Camino could be such a really amazing opportunity for that, that transition, maybe at the end of high school before college. So yeah, definitely trying to show some of the potential there. Yeah, I'm right there with you on that. In terms of the physical setting, your novel focuses on two places in particular, Eunate, the small church that is just off the route, and Burgos. What about those two places made them fit so prominently into your novel? Well, Iunate is one of those places that I probably wouldn't have seen as a pilgrim. Like you said, it is off the route a bit. But when I was a college student, it was one of the places my professor brought us. And it just has always stuck in my mind. I've heard the description of thin places, you know, places where the past feels very present. It has like an otherworldly kind of quality to it. So I definitely wanted that to be in the novel. Mm -hmm. And the scene at Unate is my favorite. In the whole book, it's a pretty big moment of growth for the characters. So I definitely wanted to have that almost magical feel. So it just felt like the perfect location. And what about Burgos? Yeah, Burgos. That was more of a practical decision. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a city. <laughs> um, wanted the main character, Gabby, to have this moment of breakdown and renewal, but to be in a more urban environment where she would be more likely to run into some people that she had met earlier in her pilgrimage experience. When I was writing the novel, I also read about something that was taking place in a few cities in Germany and in Ireland, different cities opening up their cathedrals at night mm -hmm. as a safe haven as a place where people could come and reflect or maybe they're out experiencing the nightlife of the city but they just want the quiet moment so i thought that was a really cool idea the people of a city reclaiming their cathedral not as something that's just a tourist attraction but using it using it at all hours at all times and so burgos kind of fit that practical decision yeah i love that idea it just made me want to go find one of those churches it's a beautiful scene I want to talk a little bit more about a few particular moments in the novel without giving anything away. A couple quotes and then your approach to intertextuality. 
the first quote that I'd love to hear you talk about more, there's a line where you write, the Camino is beautiful in the same way war is beautiful. And that gave me pause. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's definitely a strange statement. (laughs) And so I should mention that Gabby, she isn't walking the Camino alone. She's walking Mm -hmm. with her brother's best friend, Seth, who is a 19-year-old soldier. He goes on to explain it a little bit more, but he's not saying that death and destruction (laughs) are in in any way good or beautiful, but that there's something about the intensity of the experience that pulls you right into the present that makes every moment precious. You're not worried about the past or the future. It's really like the present moment. I've even read about some soldiers who say that this is an aspect of war that can almost be kind of addictive. There have been soldiers who maybe volunteer to go back because they felt more alive, more normal in that environment than they did back at home where life just goes on as normal as if we haven't been in a war for over a decade. So I think that that's what he was saying. And I thought it was interesting that people have described the Camino in a similar way. Like the idea that on the Camino, you are in the present. You feel more alive, more human, more normal in some ways than you do in your regular life. I've heard of pilgrims who go back over and over again. They walk the same route because of that experience of living so fully in the present. Yeah, it's really interesting because it seems like that peak intensity of life in war is driven in part by that presence of death, that death could be around the corner at any time. Yeah. And for the Camino, of course, that's not the case. There are, unfortunately, tragically, some who do die on Camino each year. But the vast majority of pilgrims aren't thinking about death. So it's a connection and a feeling of the deeper presence of life, but coming at it from a very different angle. Yeah, very true. The second quote I want to read comes from a statement that your narrator makes near the middle of the novel. And the quote is, why else would people walk hundreds of miles to a place they've never seen? What is it that our restless hearts are searching for? Home. This idea that home is the destination of this journey that is actually taking us quite far away. On the surface, it seems counterintuitive. Why does leaving home and walking into the unknown translate into a search for home itself? What is your narrator or you trying to get at here? It is kind of a paradox would be one that is pretty familiar to travelers, maybe pilgrims specifically, but I think travelers in general, you know, that idea that we sometimes have to leave our familiar surroundings in order to learn about the things that are true about where we came from, true about ourselves, our relationships, our life back home. And those things have probably always been there, but it's the journey itself, in this case, a pilgrimage that can bring it to the surface. In my narrator, Gabby's case in particular, there's kind of an added layer in that she's a military kid, which means she's moved around a lot. She's always been a nomad and she's never really had a sense of home as a physical place. And so what she learns through this journey, and I think especially through her interactions with other pilgrims and just the sense of community that she finds on the road is for her home is really ultimately about connection to other people. In the same way that we might feel a sense of life more deeply on pilgrimage, it's also interesting how we feel a sense of place, that we are more connected sometimes to that albergue where we feel a deep sense of hospitality, that that has a hominess to it that the physical space we might inhabit at home could lack. Exactly. Yeah. It's such a strange thing, (laughs) but I think very true. (laughs) You weave Homer's works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, into the story at multiple points, and I could interpret those very quickly in a number of different ways, but I'm wondering what your thinking is with these two texts. 
I mentioned I was a high school teacher for a time, and probably one of the best teaching experiences in my career was reading the Iliad for an entire semester, like 10 pages a day, <laughs> with ninth graders. We read it slowly. It was the only thing we did. They would read it the night before. We'd come in and discuss those 10 pages for 50 minutes. <laughs> and it was just amazing. I was blown away by how into it they were, how much they loved this epic that's thousands of years old, <laughs> how the different connections they were able to make to contemporary life. So this idea of the Iliad is kind of the ultimate war story, and it ended up serving as a symbol for that aspect of the novel, for Seth, Gabby's walking companion, for all the military aspects of the novel. And then it just made sense that the Odyssey is, if that's the <laughs> ultimate journey story, and it's specifically, it's, it's about a war veteran who's trying to find his way home. It became a symbol for Gabby and for her relationship with her brother, who she's walking the Camino for. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that is nice, connecting back to the previous question, that it is a journey towards home. As you thought about it more, do you see more connections between Pilgrimage and the Odyssey, which is a circuitous, challenging trip, <laughs> to be sure? Maybe a difference would be, you know, Odysseus is trying to get home <laughs> and he's encountering all these obstacles where in some ways my character is trying to break away from home, as many young adults are <laughs> trying to figure out their own identity and find their own place. But that paradoxically actually ends up bringing her closer to her roots in the end. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, this is something that we need a couple of weeks of class discussion to sort through. So we'll have to leave it unresolved <laughs> for now. As I read your novel, I approach it through the perspective, obviously, of someone who has walked the Camino multiple times. And similarly, that's how I encountered Martin Sheen's The Way, as someone who had his own personal experience with the Camino. And often, that's not ideal for the source, because one approaches it through the lens of someone who loves it and is defensive to it and is loyal to the precision of it. And so as I read your novel, I caught myself reacting to what felt at times like an over-dramatization of the Camino. And so given what you said earlier, that you want to inspire young people, that's part of your motivation here. You want young people to be drawn to this kind of journey. You want people to feel that pull of the Camino. Did you worry at all about the over-dramatizing? Or is that just necessary hyperbole, given that we're seeing things through the lens of your teenage narrator? Yeah, I mean, that question makes a lot of sense. The comparison with the way, <laughs> I know what you mean as well, you know, having seen that after walking the Camino and appreciating it as a good story, but not necessarily reflecting my own experience. <laughs> it points to a couple interesting things. One would be the difference of when we write for the choir <laughs> versus writing for someone who's never heard of the Camino is approaching it for the very first time. So that was definitely an element of it. I didn't have in mind experienced pilgrims, you know, necessarily <laughs> as my primary audience. But yeah, it's interesting. I think there's a couple things. First, like you said, the protagonist is 17. And that was the only reason I was able to write a young adult novel is, I know for me, I don't know, it's not like this for everybody, but for many people, the teenage years, they become some of our most vivid memories. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we're having these intense first adult experiences. And anytime we're experiencing something for the first time, it's going to stick in our memory more. That was part of it, too, is wanting to capture that with a young narrator. For an experienced traveler, the Camino might feel pretty tame. 
before a young girl who's never done a hike, never traveled by herself, there might be a different level of intensity and emotion. And even if the things that are happening to her may not be life and death, (laughs) they may feel that way on an emotional level. Yeah. So I think that was part of it is that being the main audience and wanting to attract a younger audience that probably isn't going to pick up a memoir by a pilgrim at a completely different stage of life that they can't really connect with with those experiences that someone might have writing a memoir about their communal at 50, but they may be able to connect with somebody experiencing it in their age group. And that's really part of it, too, I think, is the matter of genre. In the world of communal literature, memoir is the most popular genre that we don't have a lot of fiction. And maybe it is part of the reason for that. <laughs> but I think when someone does approach a novel, they have a different set of expectations than we might have when we pick up a memoir, where we expect mainly introspection, a more internal journey. And that was actually one of the pieces of editorial feedback I got when the novel was accepted for publication was that it actually felt too memoirish in places <laughs> and that we needed to get out of the character's head a bit and see growth taking place through physical obstacles, relational conflict. That's an aspect of it, too, that there's just a structure to fiction to a novel that in the end, as long as the experiences feel like they could happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're probably not all going to happen in one pilgrimage. You know, Gabby probably walks 10 pilgrimages (laughs) as far as (laughs) the different kinds of obstacles that she overcame. But many of them are, you know, pulled from my experiences, not just on the Camino, but travel experiences in general. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of all pulled into one place in this story. Why do you think it is that You know, there are dozens and dozens of Camino memoirs that are published, and yet it hasn't drawn so much fiction. Do you have any speculation on why that is? Yeah, I think there is something about the Camino that inspires people to want to tell their own story. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely think that's why we see memoir as so popular. I wonder, it is tricky, like just for the reasons you mentioned, especially when you have a contemporary setting and you care about the subject material and you want to portray it realistically, but you also want it to be interesting and exciting for people who may not be picking up the book because they say, oh, this is a Camino book. (laughs) They may just want to read a good novel. It's a hard balance, kind of a tightrope to walk. I've heard of a historical murder mystery maybe Mm -hmm. set on the Camino, which is interesting. And in some ways, the historical novel I wrote did feel a bit safer because there's that distance. But I'm not sure why it hasn't inspired more fiction. Maybe that will change as it becomes something that more and more people are familiar with. It wouldn't surprise me. For those whose reading habits have been geared towards memoir, what's your pitch? Why should they consider a fictional engagement with the Camino? For me, writing it, one of the reminders and one of the things that a novel can accomplish that maybe a memoir can't, again, goes back to that element of the genre, what a novel is, the structure of it. It can allow us to experience in a more distilled way the reality that one of the reasons people are so drawn to the Camino is that it really helps us recognize and live out the truth that each human life is a story. I've always been kind of intrigued by how even the I don't know if you're familiar with the hero's cycle or the hero's journey, sure. uh, which is a common structure in storytelling. And it's just intriguing that the geography of the Camino Frances, at least, fits with that in some ways. We have the Meseta. After kind of the peaks of the Pyrenees and the glorious views, you have this period of 
desolation and trial and <laughs> more arid landscape where it just frankly gets boring for a period. But there may be a lot of valuable life lessons learned during that phase. And then we get again to Galicia and some of the more beautiful scenery at the end. So just interesting how the geography itself mirrors this concept of a journey or this notion of our lives being a story with peaks and valleys. I found that aspect of what a novel is really helped just serve as a reminder that we can be protagonists in our life story. So I hope it's a reminder that inspires people, especially those who otherwise have never heard of the Camino or would have considered walking it to maybe give it a try. That's fantastic. I know that you stayed with some of the characters in the novel in a sequel that took them to Scotland. Do you see yourself returning in a literary sense to the Camino at some other point? Is that historical novel on the Camino going to have another <laughs> chance at life? You know, maybe. It's been a decade, so maybe I'm ready to tackle that finally. <laughs> yeah, I do think if I did return to the Camino, it probably would be in a historical setting. How about a little, just a teaser, what idea were you wrestling with? Are you willing to share? Sure. I studied history and theology, like I mentioned, and looked at religious conflict was one of the topics I researched a bit as a grad student. And so it was actually set during a period where the Camino was not very popular. Mm -hmm. So it was actually during the European Reformation. And so the Camino was actually not being <laughs> uh, well-traveled. It kind of brings in elements of the religious conflict taking place in Europe at that time. So very, very different. Well, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that you will give it another chance and see if something can come out of it. But if not, I also understand the challenges you're wrestling with there. Thank you, Ashley. It's been great to hear about your work, and I just look forward to seeing more from you in the future. Well, thanks so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Leaving. I try to walk away, stand looking at a fountain at six in the morning, walking home in the cool June dawn. The breeze silence, cut grass in it, or fresh wood smoke, first fire, or embers of the last. David McLaughlin is a poet and literary translator from New York City via Ireland, fluent in Spanish and deeply versed in Gallego culture thanks to multiple extended stays in Santiago de Compostela. His collection of poems, written on his first year in Santiago, called Santiago Sketches, was published in 2017. Thanks for talking with me, David. Oh, pleasure. Pleasure, Dave. Thank you. It's a great honor to talk to you. How did an Irish fellow find himself in Santiago de Compostela? Yeah, so I suppose it's pretty simple, really. The gap year junior year abroad thing was coming up in University College Dublin back in a long time ago, 1993. And so there was an option of about maybe eight different places. And Santiago was just the most unusual of the lot. And my parents went to Spain on their honeymoon in the early 70s. And I'd had that connection because we used to go on holidays or vacation to the south of Spain. Yeah, I just knew I didn't want to go to Madrid because capital city and all of that. I didn't want to go to Valladolid in the northern center of Castile because I don't know, I wanted something different. So yeah, I went to Santiago. It was just incredibly rewarding to do that. And I'm really grateful that I did it. Did you know much about Santiago heading into that or it was just kind of the mystery? Yeah, I knew a tiny bit, but my family has had these Spanish friends called the Pombos who are from Madrid and Cantabria, Santander. And I used to go to them as a teenager just to learn Spanish. And they always would say, oh, yeah, the Gallegos are the Irish of Spain. And I was always intrigued by that. And then there was some like rumors about this pilgrimage, but that was all I knew. I really almost knew nothing. 
Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because for most of the people listening, they know about Santiago as the destination. It's the thing that their entire trip is oriented towards. They may have seen pictures of it. They may have looked at videos, but in large part, it's this abstract idea that they're building towards. Yeah. And you started in Santiago knowing next to nothing about it. So for you being in the city and learning about it from within, what was that process of discovery like for you? You know, just very organic there as a 20-year-old going on 21-year-old. I was there from October of 1993 until the very end of June 1994. Just bit by bit, I learned about the pilgrimage. I think it was the first, what they call Shakabeo, the first holy year, the first one in which it was promoted. The Galician Tourist Board had kind of realized, oh my God, we can do a great thing here, you know, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and they started painting those yellow arrows. They started to realize, oh, we can kind of bring it back as a wider cultural thing, as a tourist thing. On many levels, we can start to make people more aware of it. Were you running into pilgrims as you tramped around town? Yes, definitely. There is the four famous squares around the cathedral. Three of the four are named after silver, gold. Athabacheria is named after Jet, the precious stone. Plata de Athabacheria, the Obradoiro, the gold worker square. That's the main square everyone comes into. And then there's Platerias, the statues of the horses in the fountain. And then you've got La Quintana, which is my favorite square which is kind of like at the back of the cathedral. It's got a convent, a huge convent beside it. It's kind of like a stage set. So I used to love sitting in there. Yeah, you'd see the pilgrims coming in utterly exhausted. You know, Santiago is, I haven't been there now for 10 years, unfortunately. But back then, it was quite a bohemian kind of city. So you'd see anybody from hipsters, bohemians, and or homeless people and intravenous drug addicts hanging around, people drinking cooking wine that they just bought for a couple of pesetas. And so they'd all be sitting around and then all the um, pilgrims would be coming in and you'd kind of wonder, oh my God, I hope those pilgrims aren't going to get mugged, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> it was kind of like a wonderful part of the everyday life of the city. Did you talk to locals? Like, did you get a sense at that time in 1993? Were locals excited about the promotion of the pilgrimage or were they concerned? No, I don't think they were concerned. You'd have all sorts of reactions. Like I remember a student, I had a little pin, which I stuck onto my beanie of the logo of St. James. It's kind of like a fleur de lis as well. I think there's another symbol. I don't know if that rings a bell with you. The Order of Santiago is kind of the military cross, right? That's exactly it. That's it. So I stuck that on my beanie and some guy said to me, oh my God, you look like a pilgrim, you know, pareces un peregrino. And that was like very uncool, you know, <laughs> to him, you know, to be serious, though, there was lots of people who owned stores were like, oh my God, this is great. I think in general, people were interested in it. I guess they just didn't want their daily lives to be too disturbed, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Let's talk about language. Given your linguistic background, uh, was it just coincidence that drew you first to Spanish and then Gallego, or were there other factors at play drawing you to these languages? My folks brought us to Spain on the Costa del Sol, you know, down in the south. But we were going to this place called Narja, which is about an hour south of Granada. So that's where I had my first experience of Spain and then of Spanish. I never really learned Spanish until I was about 16 and I did it in high school. And then there was all the visiting my friends in Spain to learn, you know, as a kind of exchange student. And then I did it in college. So there was a long process of immersion. And then being there as a Erasmus student in Santiago, 
I didn't actually learn Gallego until about 10 years later. And at the time I was in Santiago, I was very much like, oh, I'm here to learn Spanish. I'm what am I? <laughs> yeah. And like I wasn't quite up to speed with the local situation. But Gallegos are kind of not as in your face as Catalans with the language situation. It would depend if you were speaking to a young kind of politically active independentista, we would call them, if somebody who wants independence or whatever. But Gallegos are more like they were always the poorest region of Spain, them in Extremadura, I think. And so Gallegos, they didn't have the confidence historically as Basques or Catalans. I'd say that's changed now. So then I was going out with a woman from Galicia, actually. Back then, we were living in Dublin, and she found out about these courses from the Galician Institute that promotes Gallego in Santiago, and you could get these grants to go and study in Santiago in July. We went for three consecutive summers. Some people were there just for the fun, and others were actual linguists, like they were studying linguistics. But one thing that was really cool for me as someone who's interested in Gaelic or the Irish language is there was people from Brittany, and there were Basques, Catalans, and um, they were all from the point of view of their own minority language in their culture. They were like really passionate about it. And that helped me to get back into learning Irish or Gaelic again, you know. Another aspect of it was the reconnection with Santiago, which was really great, really special to do that. You know, you go there when you're 21 and then you go back when you're about 32. It's different because you're different. And that's a huge shift in Santiago over those 10 years, too. I mean, that's a profound difference in terms of the economic state of that city. Yeah. I mean, on a superficial level, the Internet had happened. <laughs> when I was there first, you had to go to these call centers to phone home, basically. There was no Internet and people were using cell phones and there was much more tourism. Here's an example. I had the option of going to Lugo instead of Santiago. And I was thinking, OK, I'm already putting my neck out. I'm going to Santiago. I don't think I'm going to go to Lugo, you know. And I did. We did a little trip to Lugo when I lived there in the early 90s. And Lugo, it was very decrepit and kind of a bit sad. It's got the beautiful Roman wall that surrounds the whole city. It's extraordinary. It's beautiful, yeah. But when I went back there in the 2000s, it had come back. And I think that has happened to a lot of places. You know, in the 90s, people were saying, oh, my God, don't go to Bilbao. You've got ETA, you've got terrorism, and the river is polluted with industrial waste and all this kind of stuff. And then when I went back there, 2005 or so, Bilbao was completely changed. They had the Guggenheim Museum. So, yeah, a lot of places were cleaned up between the 90s and the 2000s. Yeah, so Santiago has definitely come back since then. Tons of money coming in for sure. I don't know that I've gotten to talk to someone before who has fluency in Castilian Spanish and familiarity with Gallego. For pilgrims walking through, they know when they cross into Galicia because there's suddenly a tilde over Camino de Santiago. But I think by and large, they just kind of pretend the change hasn't happened and <laughs> power on with whatever Spanish they have. What we're told is that they're pretty similar and that the Galician language is a lot of Spanish and a bit of Portuguese. How would you characterize the Galician language? There was originally a language called Galeco Portugues, I believe. And Galician was the mother tongue. It was Portuguese that was the kind of the add-on at the end of Galeco Portugues. Basically, in the 19th century, the Galician Renaissance, people like Rosalia de Castro were writing in Galician and I think Eduardo Pondal and Curros Enriquez. They were the, all these poets and linguists. And like with many languages in the 19th century, they were rediscovering their kind of heritage, their linguistic heritage. And there was a kind of nationalism as well. It is interesting. It's a complicated process. And everything depends on your own perception. You know, some people are like, 
oh, why do I have to bother with this other language? I'm just here to learn Spanish or I'm just a pilgrim. Like it's difficult enough to speak Spanish. But yeah, there is this other language. Some people historically like Franco would say, oh, that's a dialect. Or they would say in Catalonia, they used to say, don't bark, speak Castilian, <laughs> which is pretty awful. Wow. Yeah, right. And the Catalans used to call it the old silver, which is like a really beautiful way of calling it. So yeah, all these years during the Franco period, those three languages, Euskera in the Basque Country, Catalan and Galician were outlawed and people were kind of shamed out of their own languages, which is really tragic. And then when Franco died and democracy started coming in and the autonomias, those regions that have an autonomous status, like they have regional governments, those three areas I mentioned in the north, Galicia, Catalonia and the Basque Country, they're all considered autonomias. And part of that is that the languages are recognized as languages. They're considered the national languages of those areas. But I think that's really important because it's a way of honoring, bringing back after all of that degradation in a way. Galician is definitely a language. It's a romance language. If you come to it from Spanish, then yeah, you're going to hear some, it seems like Spanish to you. It shares a lot with Spanish and it shares a lot with Portuguese, just the way that Catalan will share with French. Here's a funny thing. There's a Galician word for homesickness, morinha which is really beautiful. Spanish doesn't have that. They have no word for homesickness, which is kind of interesting. The Galicians, they still are probably, but they always were big migrants. They were big immigrators. They would go to Latin America and just because Galicia was so desperately poor in the 19th century and 20th. Galician is different when it's spoken by someone who isn't a native speaker, especially since Galician was originally spoken, you know, in the 19th century was spoken by people in rural areas. So they would have their own accents and their own dialects. Now it's an official language, so they're speaking it in the parliament and young, hip people in Santiago are speaking it as well, you know? Absolutely. Well, let's transition over to your poetry now. How would you characterize your approach to the poems in your Santiago Sketches collection? The poems were, I wrote them when I was 20, so they're really, if the book had been published back then in the 90s, it would have been my first book. As it was, it's my second. I waited a very long time before I even edited the poems. The approach was sort of to try and stay as close as possible to the original moment of inspiration or composition. You know, I used to spend anything from an hour to like three hours a day just wandering around the city because it's like eminently walkable, as you know, and it's pretty much pedestrianized. So, you know, I'd just be sitting around and I would be mitching off class, as we call it, like in Ireland. I was a pretty bad student. I really didn't spend much time in, in the university. But luckily, I did get to write all of these poems. So I would write maybe a couple of pages a day and then I would transcribe them into more permanent notebooks. Really, it's just trying to stay close to the original images or the original moments. I guess I would say that most poetry, it starts with the image, of course, but then those images might be worked into something completely different or might surface in a different way. And a lot of poetry functions through memory, you know, through something that's already long past, perhaps, whereas because the poems are, in a certain sense, these poems, I don't necessarily remember what actually led me to write the poem itself. But since the poem is, they're staying very close to a moment, like to, to the moments of looking, of, of seeing something happening in the street, well, then that's what I'm trying to stay. I know I'm speaking kind of abstractly, but I'm trying to stay as close to that original moment as possible. I know my friend John Liddy, who wrote the introduction, said something like that they're sort of like finished, but not overworked. Yeah, his words were ethereal, worked on, but not overworked, slightly controlled reactions to what caught the eye. Yeah, that's a pretty good way of putting it, because it's kind of like trying to walk the line between that's why I call them sketches, between that sketch-like quality. And I guess I really didn't want to lose the freshness. 
as well in them, you know. They do follow the kind of seasons, you know, they start with October when I arrived in Santiago and then they end with the end of June when I left. But I did move things around and there was a poem that I wrote later in the year and there was a bit of it that the only part that I thought was good was maybe one or two lines. So I would merge that with a poem from earlier in the timeline when I was editing it, of course. I was working on something like a thousand pages of poems, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It was crazy. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. But the end result is, I think it's a 70 or 80 page book. Yeah, it's very compact. Let's go through some of your poems. I have a few that I'd love to have you read and maybe talk about. Okay, yeah. The first poem, and I've picked these, of course, based on relevance to the audience, is the Portico of Gloria. Portico of Glory. Ahead of me, under heaven's musicians a transession in ecstasy, Christ's lineage carved above us. A pilgrim is fitting his fingers into the impression centuries of hands have made on the tree of Jesse. I slot my hand into the invisible hand, a faith negative. So I wasn't like church going all that frequently, but I did sometimes go into the, I don't know if you call it the high mass, but there was the mass where they would have the botafumero, the huge incense burner which you'd be afraid someone would get injured by, you know? <laughs> yeah, it tends to be called the Pilgrim Mass these days. Yeah, it might have been called that back then. So, you know, I was in there for that, and then I would be sort of wandering around the cathedral. And, you know, when you come in through the main facade, you have Master Mateo's beautiful facade. It's just completely awe-inspiring. You have Christ, and then you have various saints, and then you have this beautiful depiction of these musicians who are in heaven, I presume, <laughs> or there are angels playing all these different zithars and musical instruments. I just thought they looked like what we call in Ireland a trad session. They look like traditional musicians. So that was the image I went with, a trad session in ecstasy. For me, the core of the poem is really that moving moment for me where the pilgrim, it's what isn't there. It's this hand, the marks of all the centuries of people who have fit their hand touch that stone has left the imprint of five fingers and it looks like a hand. All of those molecules and atoms have been worn away infinitesimally over the centuries and it's incredibly moving really to see that. And you were there at a good time because these days pilgrims are not allowed to touch the tree anymore. Oh, uh, that's a pity. Do they have something blocking it? Yeah, there's a barricade. The whole thing is actually currently covered in scaffolding as they're repairing it for the 2021 holy year. So all of that will come down, but there will still be a barrier around the tree of Jesse to prevent people from continuing to wear <laughs> a palm-shaped hole through the pillar, I guess. Oh yeah, that's a real pity. It's like, you know, that sense of, in terms of tourism and travel, part of what people are going there to see, you don't want it to be destroyed. But then there's also that sense of luck or grace that you could naturally do what people were always doing and have always done. So there is a real pity in that not being part of the experience. Yeah. There was also a funny thing. I'm sure you're aware of it. I think they call it the San Croque or something. And I think in Spanish or Galician, I'm not sure. Darse un croque. It's like to hit your head. Yes. Yeah, to hit your head. You bend down, put your hand in the thing, and then you tap your head. Is that your experience? Yeah, and I think you were conking the head of <laughs> Master Mateo to try to get some of his, like, wisdom. I think that's how it was explained to me once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's true. So anyway, that's the Portico of Glory. I'd be happy to read a different one, though. Yeah, let's go to Año Santo. Okay, Año Santo. It's November. Holy year almost over. They'll close the Puerta Santa for six years. Walking down a sunset street, all the smells of evening, an old man with his wife, his fat, cropped, short hair neck, faint moped fumes, familiar smell again, 
Old women, bouffant hairstyles, puffed up in black fur coats, talking, talking. A colonial bell tower with sky through it. Palm trees in the north. Blackbirds in the trees. Groups of joggers through the park. Deep burning streaks of sun between dark hills. The sound of water from fountains. Branches losing their leaves. Thursday night. Soon the students will be going out. In the park, a boy and a girl walk their Alsatian. Old men in berets walking. And me. Near the cathedral, an open window to the night. A scallop shell in sandstone above the door. Blue fire from a workshop. Men in light blue overalls. Half past seven. A woman whispers something as I pass. Half-closed eyes, red eyelids, greasy long hair. I go on. Police car pauses near the park. Ratty fur coat, cheap heels. She lurches on. A car leaves the Reis Catolicos garage. Doormen, glass doors. Taxi, green light on top, passes. A white-haired priest leaves by a side door after mass, walking into the night. In a clothes shop, a woman lights a cigarette. The Quintana is quiet. November, the door still open. The year about to close. Seven years till I come back. I'm struck by, I guess, the ending, because as I remember it, I tacked that on at the end, as it were, you know, because <laughs> because it's kind of like I think everyone would have this experience that, you know, you can't step into the same river twice, according to Heraclitus. You're changed. I wrote the poem originally back then when it was that was my experience. That was a night's perambulation, just wandering around the city. An encounter with someone who maybe was a prostitute, was definitely drunk in a cheap fur coat said something to me. I'm like, "Ah, I don't think I'll stay to find out what she was saying. I'm going to walk on. The police car pauses nearby. And just all of these impressions. The poem centers around the fact that the Puerta Santa, or Porta Santa in Gallego, in the Quintana, you know that door, right? Mm -hmm, Of course. Right. So it only opens on the holy year. I was kind of lucky that I was there, if only just to observe it, to that kind of phenomenon. So that's the fulcrum of the poem. The year is about to close, and so is the door. When I edited the poem, I was like, oh, okay, so seven years until I go back. And I guess it's a sort of a melancholy kind of touch to it. Not all of this poem was written at the same time. I had these running list poems of just little impressions that were floating around my notebooks. And I kind of would put them together to create something. I guess there's the art. Maybe it seems pretty straightforward, but it's not quite that way. Some of those details would be that sort of what John talked about, that kind of worked upon, but not overly worked on. I was going for details like an old man with his wife, his fat, cropped, short hair neck. I mean, no one really says he's got a short (laughs) hair neck. But I was going for that. What does an old man's, what does a duck's ass 1950s hairstyle look like? Short hair neck, you know, and and it's a fat neck. So I was (laughs) trying to capture that. Or, Or things like taxi, green light on top, passes. It's just a certain choppy, fragmented quality to kind of communicate that feeling of impressions coming at you, you know, as you're walking through the city. Yeah, Liddy also says that instead of photographs, you have photo words. And that certainly captures a lot of your poems well, because they're pretty short and punchy. Mm-hmm. This one is more like video. <laughs> <laughs> that You can imagine the camera just moving down the street, panning side to side, and just describing what it's witnessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about that. John says that the photo word line, I think that's very clever. I suppose it's about the images there isn't a poem without a core image. Maybe sometimes the image is the only thing in the poem. That's not to denigrate the poems, but just like if I were to read one quickly. Mm-hmm. Please. This is from the November section of the book. Praza do Toral. Early morning. At the fountain. 
the junkies washing their needles. That's kind of almost a haiku, but it's like, um, (laughs) I know I shouldn't let people know this, but actually I didn't experience that. That was a story somebody told me, but I was like so struck by it. The Prata do Torab, I think it's near the Rua do Vilar. It's definitely near the Rua Franco. It's close to the Alameda Park, as those streets are flowing towards the Obradoiro Square. There's a supermarket the pilgrims probably have gone to a lot called... Oh, yeah? <laughs> the Froese. Yeah, yeah, Lorenzo, Lorenzo Froese or whatever. <laughs> and there's a funny bit of local lore. Like somebody said to me, there's a statue of Atlas holding up the world above the supermarket because that was probably a noble house or someone from the aristocracy originally lived in that building. But there's the statue of Atlas holding up the world above that. There's a local story. It's kind of like a folklore. If someone leaves Santiago University a virgin, Atlas is going to throw down that world. (laughs) (laughs) So it hasn't happened yet, you know. So that's (laughs) Something else you get along with the diploma, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You've almost anticipated my last question. You have this interesting insider-outsider status with Santiago. You have spent a lot of time there, your fluency in Castilian Spanish and your capacity in Gallego has allowed you to become quite connected over time to the place, but you're still obviously an outsider. So I wonder if you have formulated one or two deeper insights into the city, things that you've learned about it, realizations that you've had. And maybe also one or two mysteries, things that remain interesting or confounding to you about it that maybe someday you'd like to go and try to figure out. I think my big mystery would be, how could I live there and actually make a living? (laughs) (laughs) You interview this English gentleman. Johnny Walker? Yeah, that's him. Johnny Walker. Yeah. So I was like, that guy's got a maid. He got to live in Santiago. Like he got to have his bed and board paid for. That's the dream, isn't it? Definitely. I'm an outsider. My family lived in the States for a few years in Connecticut in the 1980s. And then they also lived in Belgium. So for about six years, we were abroad from Ireland. And I think it kind of made me feel like a bit of an outsider in general, because then when we moved back to Ireland, everyone called me a Yank. (laughs) I never quite lost that feeling. It's probably good for a writer, I suppose. After that, I spent about 10 years in university. Apart from the year in Santiago, I, I stayed put through the 90s in Dublin. And then all through the 2000s, I was in Galicia, I was in Spain, I was in France. And then eventually in 2010, I moved to New York and I've been here ever since. So yeah, there is this feeling of being an outsider. But there is this feeling, I suppose, for me, I think we can all have this feeling. The more you learn, and especially if you're dealing with a culture where it's not your first language, people will be really welcoming to you if you try and speak the language. And it's it's a really rewarding experience. I mean, for me, Spain is my other home in a sense, and I feel a sense of loss or sadness. I went back there in 2016 for a short visit to the south of Spain. But apart from that, living in New York, I really only return to Ireland. That's all my vacation allows for, to see my parents and my family. And so Spain is, I'm a bit disconnected there. So that's kind of sad. So here's a little secret. If anybody wants to see the fireworks of the cathedral, if they're going to do them in future on St. James's Day, there's an area called the Orchards, or Las Hortas. If you look at it on the map, it's kind of directly opposite the cathedral. As you go down those stairs directly below the cathedral, below the Obradoiro, and then between the Alameda Park and the cathedral, there's a network of little alleyways, only one person wide. They open out into these little orchards or gardens. I remember we found those and we got to have it like our own private viewing of the fireworks. (laughs) So there you go. That's a good tip. 
Well, thank you, David. It's been a lot of fun talking with you and getting to hear some of your poetry out loud. Thank you, Dave. And I'm really happy to be on the podcast. Camino-related fiction that I conveniently ignored in the intro was David Lodge's Therapy, the first of its kind that I encountered. I'll always remember how it was characterized for me in the old Go Camino email list, with the Camino entering late in the novel as a deus ex machina of sorts. While I couldn't get Mr. Lodge on the podcast, though it was a personal thrill just to exchange a couple of emails with him, I wanted to at least share a bit of his work. As I flipped back through the pages of Therapy, I couldn't help but smile when I arrived at Lodge's description of the cathedral, with this excerpt particularly apropos of my earlier discussion with David. The cathedral is a bit of a dog's breakfast architecturally, but as we say in television, it works. The elaborately decorated facade is 18th century Baroque, with a grand staircase between the two towers and spires. Behind it is the portico of the earlier Romanesque building, the Portico de la Gloria, carved by a medieval genius called Maestro Matteo. St. James has pride of place, sitting on top of a pillar just under the feet of Jesus. It's the custom for visitors to the cathedral to kneel at the foot of the pillar and place their fingers in the hollow spaces, like the holes in a knuckle duster, that have been worn into the marble through centuries of homage. There was a long line of people, many of them local, judged by their clothes and complexions, waiting to perform this ritual. On the other side of the pillar, at the foot, Maestro Matteo has carved a bust of himself and it's the custom to knock your head against his to acquire something of his wisdom. It's a shame that today's pilgrims are not privy to those traditions any longer, but I suppose I have to trust that it will assist with the long-term preservation of the cathedral. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Ashley Coles for speaking with me. You can find her at ashleycoles.com. That's A-S-H-L-E-E-C-O-W-L-E-S. And her books, Beneath Wandering Stars, and Below Northern Lights can be purchased in your online bookstore of choice. Thanks as well to David McLaughlin. You can find him at davidmclaughlin.com, M-C-L-O-G-H-L-I-N. He has links to places from which you can order Santiago sketches right on the front page, including independent options. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWitson.com. Thank you, as always, for listening. Alameda. Dove calls of afternoon, I always think are cuckoo. Two Alsatian pups gamble up, soft bite my hands, lick me with heavy tongues, then run on, play snarling. A man dozing on a bench beside a young woman who's writing. A spider spins between blades of grass, breeze, shadows of grass. An old couple stands at the Mirador with the famous cathedral view where wedding pictures are taken, brimming bow.